Okay, I want to begin by telling you about the story of, of uh, a lady. Um, some of you might have heard this story before. Uh, she wanted to... Uh, she wasn't able to make the, the wedding of her friend, uh, and so she wanted to, to write her a note uh, to encourage her for the big day. Uh, but she thought, you know, just a little handwritten note might just communicate all that she wanted to say. So she actually took an ad out in the local newspaper... Uh, so she, she sent in this little note. Hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, wishing you every happiness for your married life together. And then because she was a Christian and wanted to encourage her, she just referred to a little Bible verse right at the end. 1 John 4 verse 18. 1 John 4 verse 18. Now, uh, 1 John 4 verse 18 is a lovely verse for, um, for a wedding. Perfect love drives out fear. Okay, that's a, you know, what an encouraging little note. Uh, the power of love for, uh, for a wedding day. However, when she put this little, little advert in the newspaper, uh, obviously the editors uh, who received the, the note weren't Christians and knew very little about the books of the Bible. And so they were thinking, well, we've heard of John, but one John... That must be a typo. Uh, so they'll maybe maybe it's one John or maybe it's John four eighteen. You say, but in John four eighteen, not quite so positive for a wedding. Uh, it is true that you have no husband. Uh, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. John and 1 John are very similar in all sorts of ways. They're very similar, clearly written by the same guy, as we thought. Uh, They both start off in the same way, speaking about the Word, a title for Jesus, uh, the the supreme way that God has made himself known. Uh, They speak of him being from the beginning. Uh, There's all sorts of similar themes in the book, themes of light and very stark contrasts, light and darkness, uh, uh, truth and lies, good and evil. Uh, all sorts of, of similarities between the book. But as you can see from the verses, there's some big differences. But the biggest difference between the two books is actually what John explicitly tells you, and that is the, the different purpose for which these two books uh, are written. If we go on to the next slide. Uh, John's Gospel, the very end of John's Gospel, he tells you explicitly why he writes it. And so chapter 20, verse 31, these are written that, why have I written this book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written his gospel to persuade you that Jesus is the long-awaited rescuer ruler, uh, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you can have eternal life. That's why he's written the book, to persuade you to become a Christian, ultimately. But in 1 John 5, verse 13, we get a very similar kind of purpose statement where John tells you why he's written the book. I write these things. Why do you write it, John? To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to those who are already believers in the Lord Jesus, so that they would know that they know. Okay? So that they would know that they know. So they'd be confident. They'd be confident in their Christian faith. And we get this idea 
uh, in our passage uh, this morning. If you've got your Bible open, it'd be great if you could keep it open uh, at 1 John 2, as we'll be referring to that fairly constantly as we go through. Just glance down at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. We know that we know if this is true. Okay? So this whole book is written to reassure unsettled doubting Christians. And we we saw over the last two weeks why that is. There's a big group that's left and he's writing to the group that have stayed behind uh, who are unsettled. And so it just is worth just observing just again as we begin that it's really possible to be a sincere believer in the Lord Jesus, to put your trust in him, but to be filled with doubt. I think... I'm sure in a group of people this size, there are some of you who have a very tender conscience, who are just acutely aware of your own failure, your own sin, uh, acutely aware of your own doubts, and you're wondering, am I I the real deal? Uh, do, Do I really know God? Do I really belong to God? Am I really forgiven by God? Am I really loved by God. And if that's you, then this book is especially uh, relevant uh, for you. Think of the different experience of two people going for a job interview. So you've got the first candidate who goes for a job interview. And uh, it's always, I don't know, it's been a while since my last job interview and I hope not to have one for quite some time. So I found it very stressful. Um, but, you know, most of you know the experience. You're sort of thinking, oh, no, it's going to be... You, never, you don't sleep the night before. You're, you're worried. You don't know how many other candidates are in for this job. You don't know who's on the panel. You don't know you, the questions you're going to be asked. You try to anticipate them and try to mull over and think what your answers would be. And how can I manage to turn some of my weaknesses into strengths? And it's just all very stressful. But imagine how different it is if you've been headhunted, if you've been invited to apply for the job. The job description is written for you. There's nobody else in for the interview except you. You know everyone on the panel and you know the questions they're going to ask you. You can go into that scenario with great confidence, can't you? It's, it's almost the, passing the interview, passing the test is inevitable, almost. Well, it's so often I think that as Christians, we actually live our Christian lives as candidate number one, filled with doubt and uncertainty. Um, but John wants you to, to live the Christian life as candidate number two, to live with great confidence, to know that if judgment day was to be tomorrow, if judgment day was to be tomorrow, you could live today just like you lived yesterday. Because you know, you know the Lord Jesus. You know that all will be well. And so John wants us to live with absolute confidence to know that we belong to God, to know that we're loved and forgiven, uh, to know that we know him. So John is writing to to reassure uh, Christians, give them confidence, 
But the truth is, and this is where I find this passage really tricky, the truth is he picks a very odd strategy to try to reassure his readers. He picks a very odd way to do it, if I'm honest. Uh, What he actually does is that he sets up some mini-tests that he expects them to pass. Now think about that for a moment. Imagine you're going for your chemistry A-level or GCSE or whatever it is, and you're, you're freaking out about it. Imagine you go to your science teacher for a bit of reassurance, and your science teacher says, look, you know this stuff. You've got a good grasp of the material. I'm absolutely confident that you'll do well. But in order to reassure you, what I'll do is I'll write a mock exam just for you. What? That's, that's not helpful. I don't want another exam to do because exams are stressful. We immediately associate, don't we, all tests and exams with stress and anxiety. They're hardly reassuring. It's stressful to do them. And then if you do a mock test, then you're still left with all sorts of questions. Well, I wonder, is that a good enough grade? Have I got a good enough grade? Or could I have done better? Should I have done better? Uh, John sets up these, this, picks this odd strategy to reassure these believers by giving them these mini-tests to do. And look, I appreciate that even as I... Dis- and I'm going to do a little bit of kind of waggling on the tea this morning before we get into the text. But I really do feel that there are some of you that even as I describe the tests that John sets up, that even that, if you have a sensitive conscience, might actually do more harm than good. It might actually freak you out, increase your stress and panic. <gasps> If that's the test for basic Christianity, I'm not sure I'm, I'm even passing. And you could come away, rather than being reassured and built up, you could be left panicked and freaked out. Um, in 2014, um, there is a bunch of guys, we don't know who they are. They're a group called 4chan, and they're online pranksters. Uh, in 2014, they started posting in all sorts of different mediums uh, this advert. Um, They were saying, Apple have produced wave technology and it's, it's available now on your new iPhone 6, right? I know that's a bit dated now, but your new iPhone 6 wave technology. And it says that, um, Wave technology wirelessly charges through microwave frequencies. And so the idea was simply that you can charge your phone wirelessly by putting it in the microwave and switching it on. Okay? And you would think no one would be sucked in by that. Next slide. Okay? <laughs> wave technology does not work and so all this sort of hundreds of pictures on Twitter and Instagram started to come out as people tried wave technology and, and, and there were pictures of destroyed smoking flaming iPhones uh, released on the internet and there I think is a good example of a good tool a microwave being used for the wrong purpose 
and it leading to disaster. Okay, a good tool, a microwave, been used for the wrong purpose and it leads to disaster. These little mini tests that John has for us, all the way through this letter in many ways, but particularly in this passage, these two mini tests are wonderful tools. But if you use them in the wrong way, it will actually lead to disaster. He wants to reassure these Christians. He wants to reassure these Christians. Uh, But if we use the tool in the wrong way, we could actually do the opposite. Unsettle ourselves or one another. uh, And leave us panicked and freaked out. John has these little tests. But look at the end of our little passage in verses 12 out of 14. We see that actually that before they even sit the test, John tells them the result. Before they even sit the test, John tells them the result. Um, verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers. Well, let me read from verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, dear, dear children, because you know the Father. I'm, right, I, I'm giving you these tests to be so easy that you will pass them so that you'll be reassured that you do know him, so that you are already forgiven, so that you do belong, you are forgiven, you are loved, you do belong. Think of these little tests a bit like this. Is the best I could come up with. I was trying to think of. Imagine you are worried about your driving test. Okay, you're worried about your driving test. For some, that will be an even bigger deal than your chemistry exam. But for, for you, you're worried about your driving test. And you're beginning to think, oh no, I, I'll never, I'll never pass this. I'm just never going to be a driver. And your dad says, look, come on, come out with me. Come out with me into the car. You get into the car and your dad says, you've been practicing this for ages. You, you know you can do this. You'll definitely pass. He's, oh no, I don't think I can. I just, I don't think I'll ever be a driver. And your dad says, see that big circular thing just kind of in front of you there? You know, you kind of move it and the wheels move. Well, what do you call that? What do you call that? Ah, it's a steering wheel, Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you, you do know this stuff. You do know this stuff. Oh, well, it's not simple as that. It's not as simple as that. There's actual driving. Okay, right, turn the ignition on, let's go. You go for a spin. And as you change from first gear into second gear, he's so quick to say, do you see? You do this stuff. You can do this. You've passed the test. These tests are designed to prove basic Christianity. Uh, But we just need to be very careful how we read them. Okay, with all that said, let's dive into our first test then. First test that John has for us in verses 3 to 6 is what you might call the moral test. The moral test. Do you disregard the commands of Jesus. Do you disregard the commands of Jesus? Let me read it. We know we have, um, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. 
This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Okay, that's a lot said in there. Let's draw a picture of that. Here, I'm a, I'm a simple creature. I'm an engineer by training. I want to know how it all fits together. Here's how those verses all fit together. They begin and end with a description of the obedience test. You know him if you obey his commands or live like Jesus. And then in between you have what happens if you fail? Well, you're exposed as a liar. What happens if you pass? You experience the love of God. Okay? This is the obedience test. How do you know? How can you be sure you are a Christian? How you can, be, you can be sure you're a Christian is, number one, because you care about what Jesus says about how you should live. You care about uh, his commands. But again, I just even as I describe that, I could use that tool... In a very unhelpful way, couldn't I? I could use that little test uh, in a way that, that in a way that John doesn't intend. Um, but I don't want to be someone that, that uses a microwave to charge mobile phones. So how should the test be used? It could be used in a bad way. I could say, "Okay, put your hand up if you have been perfectly obedient to the Lord Jesus this week." Put your hand up if you've obeyed every single command flawlessly. Uh Uh-oh. No hands. Does that mean that none of us are Christians? Yet, see the problem? That's deeply unsettling even to describe that. But John uh, is clearly not intending to unsettle you. He's clearly intending to reassure you. And so why does he phrase this test? Well, he is saying, look, you already do this. You do this. And so maybe it's a little bit more helpful to phrase it positively. Do you completely disregard the commands of the Lord Jesus? Hands up. I'm not expecting too many people to put their hands up. Hands up. Who's been sleeping around this month? And in and, and one sense, hands up. Well, let, let's... Let, well, Pushing that a little second. In a second, who's been just using the, the weekend as an opportunity just to get hammered? Actually, that's in our culture, especially if you're single here this morning, it is assumed that you will be enjoying sleeping around, sleeping with other people, because we are told that that is totally fine. It's okay to sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, as long as they consent. Uh, in fact, we're told if you feel you're in a loveless marriage, this is not the air we breathe in our culture, if you're in a loveless marriage or an unhappy marriage, and you come across someone that you're deeply attracted to, and they're attracted back to you, actually, you owe it to yourself to be happy and, and leave the relationship you're in and go off with them. Is that not, why do we not do those things? Why do we not do those things? Isn't it because we care about what the Lord Jesus has said? We do. You're already doing this, John is saying. We, are already, we already care about the commands uh, the Lord Jesus uh, has given us. 
they actually already are shaping our decisions, shaping our choices for how we use our bodies and how we live in the world. If you care about the commands of Jesus, be reassured you're one of his people. If you care about what Jesus has said, be reassured you are one of his people. That's the moral test. The second test, you might call it the social test. Do you hate the people of Jesus? So do you disregard the commands of Jesus? If you don't, wonderful. That's a really good sign that you're uh, the real McCoy. Second test, do you hate the people of Jesus? Um, John talks about that really in, in verses 7 through to 11. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment but an old one which you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. What is this command? It's, it's a bit confusing, isn't it, to be honest, when you read the bit at the beginning? Is this a new command? Is it an old command? What, what on earth do you mean, John? What command are you talking about? Um, and clearly, as you read on, you see it's the command to love, to love one another. And of course, in one sense, that's an old command, isn't it? It's an old command. They've had it right from the beginning of their Christian uh, experience, uh, Christian teaching. Uh, and it's actually a command that goes right back to the Old Testament. If we go to the next slide, you see famously Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love is right there as far back as the teaching of Moses in the Old Testament. But of course, there is a sense in which uh, as Jesus repeats this command, uh, we've got it recorded for us in John thirteen thirty four, where he said, a new command I give to you, love one another. What's new about it, however? What's new about this command is the intensity and the standard and the depth of the love that is now required. You're to love as I have loved you. That's the new part of the command, isn't it? You're to love in the same way as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? He loved us so much, he sacrificially gave his life for our good. That's the way then that we are called to love one another. That is what is new about this command. John then follows that up with this little confusing phrase, but the dark, because the darkness is passing and the new light is already shining. All sorts of debate over how that, that phrase works. What he's, what, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the world? It was in darkness, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of evil, but now with the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the, the light of hope has dawned. Could mean that. But I think in the context, more likely he's talking about the light has dawned in you as an individual. When you became a Christian, the darkness is fading away in you and the light is beginning to shine. You are becoming more and more like the, the Lord Jesus. His love is seen in him and love is increasingly being seen 
in you. John 9, or John uh, 1 verse 9 through 2 verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Anyone who loves his brother is in the light. And again, we could take this test and we could use it like a microwave to charge a phone. I could ask the question, I could apply this this morning by saying, is there, any, is, there, is there anyone here who can honestly say, put your hand up if you can honestly say, I have never at any time in any way been irritated, annoyed, offended or insulted by anyone else in this room. Now if you're a guest, you don't count because you don't know anybody, right? So you don't count, right? Sorry, you can't answer. This is for regulars. Uh, but that, that, that question does make us worry, doesn't it? If the standard test is love for your brothers and sisters, man, sometimes I find it pretty hard to love some of the people in our church family. And I know for a fact that they find it hard to love me. If that's the test, maybe I'm failing. Do you see how the, the simple test could be used in the wrong way to... to panic you or freak you out but what John is saying is don't forget look don't forget that the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in your church family a love that crosses over the boundaries of age and gender and level of education and background and personality type Look, don't forget, that is not normal. That is not normal. You see, what is normal is that we love PLUs, right? PLUs, people like us. We love people like us, right? But what, we're, what we begin to see in a church family is love for people who are not like us. Love for people who are not like us. People for whom naturally you would not drift into a friendship with. You've got very little in common. They're at a different age and stage. They're interested in different things. And yet, as I have had the joy of working in this church family, I have seen the way that you guys love each other. I've seen it. Just in practice, the generosity for those in need that is so quick quick to give to those in need, quick to show hospitality, practical care in all sorts of ways. I've seen it. It's, you, you are doing this. And so as you hear this test, you are meant to be wonderfully reassured. You are the real McCoy. Look, can you love people better? Can I love people better? Of course. Is there progress we could make? Of course there is. But John is saying, as you hear these two tests, do you disregard the commands of Jesus? Well, well, no. Well, no, I don't. I don't. Am I doing them perfectly? No, but I do genuinely want to obey him. John says, do you see? Do you see? You're the real McCoy. Uh, as you 
although imperfectly and inconsistently try to love those in your church family, uh, as you attempt to do that, John wants to come alongside you and say, do you see? You're on the right track. You truly do belong to God. You are loved by him. So if you're here this morning, however, and what I've described is alien to you, if you're honest, if you're totally honest, if you would say, look, the commands of Jesus don't in any practical way shape my decisions and priorities. If you would say this love and affection that you've been describing that seems to grow between Christians who live together and serve together and pray together, that's just not my experience. The solution is not to try to swat up and pass these tests. That's not what John is saying. He's not saying, okay, try harder to obey the commands and work harder to love other Christians. That is not the solution. The way these work, they're a bit like signposts on the road to reassure, as you look at them, you are reassured you're already on the right road. That's how they work. And so as you look, if you don't see those signs, however, here is the solution. You need to get onto a new road. You need to look back to the, 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 what we were looking at last week. You need to come back and look again at the Lord Jesus. See that he is truly the historical man who was also God. That he did everything on the cross necessary for you to be forgiven. So what are you to do? If you think you're on the wrong road, what are you to do? Simply you admit your guilt. Admit how you've messed up. You fail to keep the commands. You fail to love other, other people. Admit that. Talk to him. Accept that he is who he claimed to be. And ask for his forgiveness. And that is how you change road. But for those of you who are already Christians, who already say, yeah, I've done that, I've done that. But I'm still not sure. John wants to say two things then to you. Remember, this comes in the context of the book. He wants to say, number one, you need to look up. Look up. Remember what the Lord Jesus has done for you. And then look in. Look in. If you see a flicker of these things in you, a desire to keep his commands, a desire to love other people, a desire to grow in these things, then be reassured. You are on the right track. You are forgiven. You are loved by God. You truly do know him. And everything will be okay. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. Children, fathers, young men. It's just a way of saying everyone who's a Christian. If you're looking up to the Lord Jesus and looking in and seeing these things happen, albeit imperfectly, but you're seeing these things happen in your life 
then be reassured. Let me pray for us.